welcome to The Taproot, the podcast that digs beneath the surface to understand how scientific publications are created. In each episode, we take a paper from the literature and talk about the story behind the science with one of the authors. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. And in this episode, we talk with Siobhan Braybrook. We discuss two of her papers, Pectin-Induced Changes in Cell Wall Mechanics Underlie Organ Initiation in Arabidopsis, published in Current Biology in 2011, and The Mechanochemical Aspects of Organ Formation in Arabidopsis Thaliana, The Relationship Between Pectin and Auxin, published in PLOS One in 2013. As you will see, we also discuss the gray areas of science and scientific careers, and maybe talk a tiny bit about our favorite topic, scientific impact. Now, on to the show. Siobhan, welcome to The Taproot. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, we're so happy to have you. So just a little bit about today's guest, Siobhan Braybrook. She grew up in Canada and did her undergraduate degree in plant biology at the University of Guelph. She next earned a PhD at UC Davis and then moved on to a postdoc at the University of Bern. Since 2013, She's been running her own research group as a Gatsby Career Development Fellow at the Sainsbury Laboratory at Cambridge, Um, but that is wrapping up very soon, and she'll be starting a faculty position at UCLA this summer. Siobhan is a pioneer in the use of atomic force microscopy, or AFM, and has been using it to study mechanical aspects of plant cells while they're growing, and we'll talk about that. And Siobhan is also an academic editor for the new ASPB journal, uh, Plant Direct. Okay, so Siobhan, you've sent us two papers. Uh, One is a current biology paper where you are joint co-author from 2012, and the other is a PLOS One paper from the following year. Can you just sort of summarize briefly, sort of an elevator type discussion of what happened in these papers? What's the science going on in them? Sure. So during my postdoc in Bern, I was interested in studying phyllotaxis. So this is the arrangement of organs about a stem. And that patterning happens at the shoot apical meristem. And so in these two papers, in particular, we were looking at the Arabidopsis shoot apical meristem and asking what actually were the, the changes in the cell wall chemistry and the physical changes in the cell wall that allowed organ formation to occur. Imagine that you have a blank dome of cells, which would be a naked shoot apical meristem, and what you want to do is form an organ, so locally grow some cells, but not the cells immediately next to them. So you end up with a, with a localized outgrowth. And so physically, what has to happen there is the cell wall needs to change its properties only in the region where you want it to grow, and not in the surrounding cells. The history here is that we definitely knew there was a role for the cell wall in this process because experiments involving a cell wall protein called expansin told us that uh, if you added expansin in localized areas to a meristem, it could cause outgrowths. And we know a little bit about how expansin works. It works on the xyloglucan within the cell wall. And so 
potentially what people believed is that the majority of the cell wall changes or cell wall loosening that permitted growth was through xyloglucan loosening. Now, what we did in our papers is show that actually the, the cell wall matrix, which is mostly made up of a pectin gel in Arabidopsis, has a very important um, physical contribution to whether or not cells are going to grow or not grow. So we were able to show that by blocking chemical changes in pectin modification, you could either completely abolish the cell uh, outgrowth of organs, or by having the opposite chemical change, you could end up getting more organs than you normally should. And the tech, so that's sort of the biological innovation, that the pectin matrix was important. The technical innovation is that we developed this atomic force microscopy method that actually allowed us to measure the cell wall elasticity in living meristems and show that these changes in chemistry were correlated with where organs normally formed. And when we did these weird ectopic changes to the pectin that abolished or enhanced organ formation, we could see corresponding changes in cell wall elasticity. The second paper goes, takes us a little bit further and links up the fact that auxin localization and accumulation in a meristem is what actually gives you the position of where new, new organs will form. And we could show that auxin accumulation was linked to a change in pectin chemistry and a change in elasticity of the cell wall. So we were able to really show, first, pectin was important, its chemistry controls its mechanics, and link this to the instructive phytohormone auxin. And so the, the innovations here is really this idea that you're going to use this technique to lit, you know, literally, at a microscopic level, sort of push on every cell or, or every region of the meristem and see how much how bouncy it is exactly and, and and that is telling you surface properties at a level that just nobody's been ever able to see um, that's right so the classical i mean there's classical experiments looking at tissue mechanics and cell wall mechanics going back you know to the 1940s so where people would take whole organs say a whole hypocotyl or a whole piece of stem and apply a weight to it and ask how much it deformed under that weight Mm-hmm. And they would do this after different treatments. So this is how we learned a lot about acid growth and also the mechanism by which auxin might be acting. That's how expansins were identified too, right? That is how expansins were identified, yep. But here we have exactly as you say, this cellular level resolution and microscopic resolution. So we can look at cells within a tissue, but also smaller tissues than we ever could look at before. So when did you start working on this? When did you have the idea... Or, or who had the idea to uh, start this, and when did you start working on trying this? So the person who had the idea of applying AFM in this way to plant tissues was Alexi Possell, who is my co-author on both of the papers we're discussing today. And it was really Alexi who's, who said, I think that this will work. And he spent you know, quite a lot of time trying to get it to work and eventually did get the system up and running so that we could make these types of sort of forced deformation uh, maps of meristems. This is what he was working on originally. So he sort of is the person who took this idea and refused to drop it. And so when I came in, while I was doing my postdoc in Bern, I was going to Paris to work with Alexis Postel there um, and applying this technique to meristems in a lot of different species as well. 
but I got involved in the work with him and what we were doing then was starting to say okay what can we learn from this technique that's biologically interesting and and the legwork there was trying to convince people that what we were looking at was biologically relevant and also working on ways to interpret the data so so is Alexi a microscopist a physicist what is he what is his background to so to get his background is also plant developmental biology okay. and so sort of fascinatingly you have this I guess this breed of strange creatures that you're seeing more and more of now who are developmental biologists or plant biologists who are starting to get more interested in utilizing physics to understand biological systems and you have it going the other way as well so there's there's quite often been physicists interested theoretically in biology but now you're starting to get physicists interested in experimental biology as well and so it's a nice venue to get interdisciplinarity really, really working between biologists and physicists. But both of us have a biology background, and so both of us had to do a lot of legwork um, to understand the, the physics and material science behind what we were doing. And did you know about that this was what you were going to do as part of your postdoc when you started your postdoc? No way. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, I went to Switzerland on an NSF postdoctoral fellowship, and I was going to work on philotactic patterning in sunflowers. I knew I'd be looking a little bit into the physics of it, simply because there were competing hypotheses about philotactic patterning, one which involved purely physical mechanisms, and one which involved biochemical mechanisms and auxin. And what I was interested in doing is seeing whether I could um, merge those two things together. I don't really believe in black and white answers in biology. I think we often exist in gray areas, although sometimes it's easier for our minds to make black and white characterizations. And so I did not know that I would be doing these types of experiments, although I suppose in the back of my mind it would always be a dream to be able to do them. Yeah. And so, so was the process straightforward were you like let's do these experiments then you planned them then you executed them and then you were like hooray <laughs> or was it I have a sense that it might have been slightly different from that <laughs> I I will I will briefly throw that back to you and ask you whether or not that has ever happened to you in any experiment <laughs> you've ever done <laughs> no not no <laughs> no <laughs> um definitely not straightforward so I think, that, I think this is magnified when you're using a technique that's very new. You often have so many setbacks when you're trying to develop a technique, trying to figure out what you can say with your technique, trying to interpret it. If, if no one has really done this before you, the, bur the bulk of the legwork is really down to you, both in what you're going to do and also trying to convince people that it's you know, that it's actually something that's informative. So our experiments went through a lot of stops and starts trying to find the best way, and best is of course in quotes here, trying to find an informative way to do the experiments and then an, an biologically informative way to interpret them. And it was uh, exciting, but challenging. So how many years did it take before you were convinced in your mind that this was this was working and that you were getting things that were allowing you to 
ask actual biological questions and get an answer that could be meaningful. Am I allowed to tell you that I'm still not convinced to this day? <laughs> no, I think that's super wholesome. <laughs> I, I mean, I actually think this, the aspect of self-doubt and self-checking and constantly wondering if what you're doing, what you're saying your experiments mean is what they really mean is, is so useful and powerful, but it can, it can also be kind of debilitating. So I think what Ivan and I are both interested in is how you exist in this space where you are you have to convince both yourself and other people that what you're doing is meaningful and as you say without in a gray in a gray area without insisting on things being black and white so i will say that in the beginning i found this incredibly difficult so as i mentioned i was working i was official i was in switzerland but i would go to paris to do these experiments and when I would come back to Switzerland and be presenting sort of the data and things that Alexi and I were doing within the research group, I, I was challenged a lot about the validity of what we were doing, um, the validity of the interpretations, if any interpretations could be made. And that was really difficult for me because, you know, it's, it's not often that you get something so in your face, I guess. You get that challenge right in your face, you know, in the end, it was incredibly useful because it made me ask, it, it made me more critical. It made me ask questions to myself. Well, how do I believe this? Why do I believe this? Do I need to do more controls to really understand it? And I think that taking those criticisms, not as criticisms of myself, but as really sort of positive probes that would help me strengthen my method, strengthen my interpretation, and again, allow me to ask the questions I wanted to be able to ask with confidence was something I had to learn. Because originally I just cried. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and that's a skill that I think I need to employ all the time in the work we're still doing. So as I mentioned, we're still pushing the method. We're still trying to get to the place where we feel confident that we're, that we're really looking at things that are biologically interesting and relevant. And I carry with me that kind of challenging attitude, like you said, within myself now, but also obviously with the reviews we get back from manuscripts, the reviews we get back from grants. Um, and I guess what it does is keeps me on my toes. And I, I choose to look out of it, at it in that positive way as opposed to looking at it as if people just keep punching me in the face. <laughs> Were there times that you thought, if this next experiment doesn't quite go right, I need to stop this project? I never felt like I wanted to drop it. Because for me, the driving thing was, I want to be able to answer this question. I want to know physically what's happening when, say, we get an auxin stimulus. And I want to be able to answer how the chemistry of the wall is related to those changes. And, you know, when we look at genes that are involved in developmental processes, or we look at the cytoskeleton and what it does, really, in the end, the changes in the wall have to happen in order for any growth to occur at all. And so for me, I wanted to know what was happening there, and I still do to this day. 
And I never felt like, oh, I should drop this. I, I think that's probably a slightly insane way to go about things. Um, <laughs> but for me, I felt like we were onto something. And I guess that was sort of my gut. Even though sometimes it would really drag on, I felt, no, I think we need to keep pushing here. We're, we're getting closer. We are getting closer. And so, so, I mean, that's a really powerful thing to have in your back pocket. But how do you, so you convince yourself that what you're doing is right and that, the, that you're asking the right questions about your technique. And then you succeed in convincing your colleagues in your lab and your PI. But then you have to convince reviewers and grant reviewers, um, which to me seems so much harder because they're coming, this is like a completely new thing. Tell us about how that went. So it was not easy to publish these first two papers. There was um, one AFM paper that actually came out before ours from the groups of Olivier Hamon and Aretsky Boudaoud in Lyon. And I think they also had had some difficulty publishing that work. Um, and honestly, if I'm going to, if I, yeah, if I can be honest with you, I will say that we still face the same challenges today. So we are constantly having people say, well, how do you know, for example, cell wall elasticity, which is what we're measuring here, this instantaneous sort of change in the cell wall when you poke on it? How do you know that has anything to do with growth whatsoever? And the only thing I can say is that, well, we don't. Right now we have a lot of correlations. The correlations are incredibly strong and they make a lot of sense. They're parsimonious with what we know about growth hormones and growth. But still, you know, we're still incrementally you know, moving towards hopefully being able to connect how elasticity might relate to growth. Um, but we get the same comments even now in reviews where people say, well, I'm not quite sure that I buy this. And for me, again, I feel as though it's my job as a scientist to say, well, let's put this hypothesis forward, but we need to keep testing it. So I don't believe that any particular publication solves any question, but that's my philosophy of science. I think and, this is a really good, yeah. I mean, this is a, this is one of the endless frustrations that I think many of us fall into is that you have this critique from a reviewer and they're not necessarily always suggesting the ob an obvious experiment to them that would change their mind mm -hmm. it's an, it becomes an ambiguous I'm not convinced yet and I mean, so, I, and, and, and I think, especially for some journals, th their criteria are stated in a way that somebody can say, I, I'm not convinced yet, so don't publish it. <laughs> right. There's no, I think something that, that uh, is worth sort of discussing is just that it, it can be okay to publish stories that are... Um, evidence in favor of a particular hypothesis 
but there's something about the culture of publishing that requires you to make these outlandish claims that are typically overstating what's really happening in your in your science instead of uh, encouraging people to sort of understate their claims in the abstract instead it's always you're always encouraged to overstate it and as Ivan said that's often a an unwritten requirement I think for for some journals I so one of the other hats that I wear when I'm teaching is teaching philosophy of science um, and scientific method and also sort of understanding what what a scientific fact is and what scientific truth is and I feel as though we've gotten ourselves as a scientific community into a bit of a sort of Ouroboros where we're eating our own tail because we feel as though we have to overstate things. We have to say, this is the way it is, and make a large claim, even though actually all of our data is simply suggestive. So I, I'm not, one of the things I think obviously that the three of us are passionate about is sound science journals, where you're not evaluated on how big you make your story but on how, on how good the data is. Um, I, for me, you know, our second paper that we're talking about today was published in the Sound Science Journal. And one of the reasons we chose to do that is because we were getting really, really sick and tired of trying to fight to publish something, including something as, you know, sort of straightforward as auxin causes cell wall softening, <laughs> which seems quite um, reasonable as a conclusion. So how many journals did you submit that to before you decided that it was just going to be plus one and because and, I want this to be over? Um, I'm pretty sure that that one, so the second paper, I think it was four different journals, um, which may or may not seem like a lot to people. Um, I think also... For, for Alexi and I, at that point in our careers, we were both relatively junior, and it's very understandable to want to have your journal, your work published in sort of the highest impact journals that you can get it in. And so we went for those l- larger, more higher impact journals first, which, you know, I, my feeling now is that you should really evaluate your work and try and understand where it's best fit um, but that's a really hard decision for a young scientist to make. And so we tried higher impact journals um, and sort of kept doing that down the list for, yeah, like I think I think it was about four or five journals and then finally said, okay, well, we actually need this to be out there. We needed it to be out there for the scientific community, but also for our own careers. And so we made that choice. And the paper gets cited. It does not not get cited just because it's in PLOS One. Right. And I think that's an important thing to sort of say to people. Um, sometimes you may feel as though you are giving up under the weight of the machine, <laughs> but what you should really be evaluating is, is your work imp- impactful in your field? Not, is it being published in, I'm going to, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but I probably will, in a journal that thinks it's impactful just because lots of people think it's impactful. <laughs> Does that sound horrible? <laughs> no. I mean, I think I think this whole idea of impact is, is interesting and something we've discussed with earlier 
mm-hmm. um, in, in earlier podcast conversations. I I think the I've said this a couple of times, and I, I think it's really true. For me, it's focusing on the question that I want to answer, and finding a way to answer that question. And also recognizing that that question will never be answered. I really believe that's true. I, for me, I'm, I'm sort of a realist. I believe that when we do science, we're gaining a better understanding of the way our world works. But we'll probably never really fully understand all of it. And, and sometimes we'll make mistakes, but the onus is on us as the researcher to figure out if we have made a mistake. You know, I, something we've published in one of these papers might turn out to be incorrect. But I'd like to be the person that says that, and I think that's my responsibility. So we just keep moving forward. With respect to sort of the students in the lab, my, my general feeling is that working in this type of discipline is going to attract a certain type of person. And the type of people we usually get are people who are basically wildly driven by curiosity. And whether or not it's... it's Wise or not are generally relative are very fearless so it they don't think about whether or not the experiment's going to work out they're going to get a science paper and get a job from it instead they focus on this is a question one I want to answer and I'm going to trust that that will put me in a position to do what makes me happy next so I think that's what we try and focus on with respect to careers so I mean, I think that's great advice, and but I do worry that when we say that, it sounds to people like, if you don't love your science, you shouldn't be here. If you don't, um, you shouldn't care about your your career prospects or your job. You should just be curious. When in reality there are going to be times when your science isn't awesome and super exciting and I certainly have had those times in my career and almost left science because of them and also there are people who it really matters whether they're employed because they have families that depend on them or they need health care so I don't know how to balance those Yeah, I mean, I obviously do not have an answer to that either. And I think that's one of our continual struggles as scientists, which is how do you balance um, loving what you do with the fact that sometimes you hate what you do and that even though you love it, it might not actually be the thing that you will get to do in this dream way for the rest of your life because there are real-world concerns that take precedence over just what makes you sort of giddy and joyful. Um, I certainly know people who have been big dreamers and completely fearless, and it has not worked out for them. So I I don't think that's a recipe for success. I think it's ignorant probably to assume that not paying any attention to the objective (laughs) criteria that will be used to evaluate you in your given next career step I think that's also a bit silly to to pretend those things don't exist. But somehow I think you have to balance that where what you're trying to do is is go somewhere new where people haven't gone before because in some ways that can be one of the best ways to get yourself 
a, a, a research career. Yeah, I think this is funny um, because uh, of my insider knowledge about Siobhan, right? So you're presenting <laughs> yourself here like this dreamer, which you are, and somebody who's driven absolutely from a love of science and curiosity about how plants work. But at the same time, I've seen your whiteboard. <laughs> I've seen you planning <laughs> planning out all your publications. Maybe we can even link to one of those pictures of your, what's it called, a Kanban board we were talking about? Which I've tweeted, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's uh, this bal- balance between dreaming and, and, like, being a practical human being. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I want to kind of revisit this, this idea of balancing what some people think you should be in an objective measure uh, and what you think is intrinsically good. And I think it's the your two publications is a really good juxtaposition because current biology has a reputation as an quote-unquote impact journal. Yeah. And so either... Uh, so you were willing to keep trying to get that paper in, but it sounds like almost the plus one paper is the one you are more fond of and is but in this case you can sort of have your cake and eat it too you did both obviously if you had published both of them in plus one they would have been out earlier if you had just taken that decision right off the bat Um, and I was wondering if that in hindsight do you wish you had cut to the chase uh, or 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 was the, the, the career objective what really drove you to make sure you had at least one impact quote unquote, I really do hate the word, uh, publication? So for me, I, I suppose I was lucky because as you mentioned, I've had, I've had a paper in, a, in current biology, which is a high impact journal, which is well respected. And also, I've, I've had experience publishing in sound science journals. I, I previously have made a vow only to publish in sound science journals. Um, I am currently revising that a little bit to go for only open access journals, but I still really want to push my lab to, to publish in sound science journals. And the reason I want to do that is because, for me, and again, I can get myself in trouble here. I think that the way things are chosen for what we call high impact journals, I think it's a, I think it's a little bit flawed. I think the reason sometimes that things get in it depends on whose name is on the paper, and also, and I, and I think that that is something that's happened to me previously. And I also think that if you take the idea of novelty and interest from three people in a field, maybe that's not really enough to push something forward as to whether it's actually of general interest. And I mean, I don't know, I think all of us think about this a lot, which is how do you solve this problem? And one way for me is using things like bioarchive, where you can get a wider, a wider idea of, of interest within the field than just three people who may or may not have their own um, pet hypotheses as well. So I don't know if that answers you because it was still difficult for me as a young scientist and still is as someone who does not have tenure 
to say, well, I'm only going to publish in open access or sound science journals. Um, it, but I, I'm trying to do that. Whether or not I'm doing it successfully, we'll see. Yeah, I think that. I mean, I, I think that's a that definitely answers the the question of the thought process. So one of my follow up questions was going to be if you had done this earlier, if you had, if BioArchive had existed back then, would that have solved some of your problems? Um, and I think it's a. I, I'm a, obviously as the 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 editor of Plant Direct. I'm a huge preprint supporter. I think your your deeper question about if I just say I'm only going to publish in open access and sound science journals, uh, is that going to hurt my tenure prospects? Is still an uh, unfortunately uh, an open question. Yeah. And. I do wonder if somebody brave like you <laughs> says from the beginning. S stupid. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I think this is. Th there is yeah. a reason that good institutions give uh, young scientists mentors, and one of them is to have this type of conversation. Because yeah. if if the if your mentorship committee at UCLA is very clear that that is a really 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 bad strategy. I need to listen to them. You unfortunately need to listen to them. On the other hand, if you come into it saying, this is the way I'm going to operate, and I would like you guys to try and evaluate me, um, that's maybe uh, the people at UCLA are going to be very receptive to that. I think that's what I'm going to try. And, and the, the way that I mentor people in my lab and sort of other young scientists that I talk to is to say, look, you need to recognize the system that is evaluating you. And so whatever that system is, at whatever stage you're in, this is again goes back to the practical versus the dreamer. You need to recognize the way you will be evaluated, and you need to balance that, and you need to try and meet some of those targets while not just, you don't just want to sacrifice yourself on a pyre. And like you say, a good mentor who will tell you, I value your, you know, your, your wanting to be a martyr for this cause, but you need to think about whether or not that's useful. And... I think we all hope that there will be a day, you know, where you will be evaluated on the quality of your work and not just sort of a simple metric. But maybe that, you know, that might be a dream as well, because everybody knows we only have limited, limited amounts of time. And when you're on a job search committee or you're reviewing fellowship applications, it's a lot easier to evaluate someone, especially if they're outside of your field, based on some sort of objective hem. <laughs> metrics. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, we really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with us, Siobhan. If people want to reach you, how should they do that? So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at BraybrookSA. And you can also always go to my website which has for the lab, which has updated contact information. And that's www.plantmechanome.org. What is the best way to contact the Haswell Ohm? Uh, the Haswell Ohm can be found on Twitter at, at eHaswell. And uh, you can reach me uh, at Baxter Twee, that's Baxter T W I. And if you want to email Liz and I, 
with any thoughts, comments, questions about the podcast, we have a podcast email address, which is taproot at plantae.org. And with that, we will thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Siobhan. It was great to talk to you. If you liked listening to The Taproot, please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes as it helps other listeners find the podcast. We're also considering adding a bonus wrap-up episode to this first season that addresses questions from you, the audience, and might include a few little snippets from our blooper reel. If you have any questions, please send them to our email address, taproot@plante.org, or tweet at us. The Taproot is produced by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plante website. Our producers are Melanie Binder and Mary Williams, and The Taproot is edited by Tasneem Bufafel. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.